Good morning. You turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Not an easy book to to find, like one or two pages probably in your Bible. So if you go to Revelation, it's right before Revelation. If you come before Revelation and you hit Third John, you've gone too far. It's sandwiched in between there. It is good to be uh, back with you. When we left, uh, Dave was really gracious to let me say some goodbyes up front. That meant that meant a lot uh, to me to be able to uh, to share with you uh, what was taking place in our lives and why we were leaving. It's great to be back at Journey. It's great to have my my family next to me, my my daughter, son-in-law, my grandsons, people that I've known for 35 years. But it's also hard to be away from you guys. And we have grieved leaving here uh, because uh, you're in our hearts. And so we love the t- fact that you eat together a lot. That, that has been a blessing. If you've been around every time there's food here, we kind of show up. And uh, so we were here last, last Sunday to, to do that. So it's, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Just to let you know also, that really is sincere. You may not think it is because when I get done preaching, I'm going to jet out of here real quick. And the reason is you can feel real bad for me. I'm playing golf this afternoon in a, in a tournament. So I have to get there for the, for the tea time. So I will be leaving uh, quickly. Next week, plan on hanging around afterwards and talking with some of y'all. Okay, hopefully by now you are to the, the book of Jude, just one chapter, 29 verse, 25 verses. Today uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Next Sunday, Lord willing, verses 20 to 25. Uh, the middle part is very thick and dense and messy, and so very conveniently I don't have time to deal with all of that, so we'll skip over that, and uh, I'll do just the beginning and the end. So here are the first four verses of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get a little idea of of the background here. So it's written by Jude, uh, this uh, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So this would be a half-brother of Jesus himself. Who's it written to? Well, continuing in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So this is not written to a specific church. This is written uh, to churches in general. It's a general letter. It would be circulated among churches. That's who it's written to. What's the purpose of the letter? Well, in verse 3, we find that. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write 
appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude had planned to write a different letter. He was going to write a letter. Its contents were going to be very different than what we find here, and it was to deal with their common salvation. He wanted to expound. This is what we have in Jesus. This is what our salvation is in Jesus. This is how we engage that salvation. He would have written about those things. But instead, circumstances had come to his attention that changed the direction of what he wrote, what he needed to write about. It says, but false teachers were infiltrating the churches. So Jude then switches his focus. He writes with the focus of exhorting them. And here's the key of these first four verses, and really the whole book, contend for the faith. Now, this is the only instruction given in these verses. This is the command that is given to us, contend for the faith. Now, Jude is about to present a significant challenge to these people and and to us when he says contend for the faith. But before he gets to contend for the faith, we don't throw away the introduction as those are just nice words. What Jude brings to us, what Jude gives, are words of comfort and encouragement and strength. So let's look at those first. So comforting, encouraging, strengthening words. These are grounding them before he presents the challenge. And he gives them three words to start off with in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He says, you're called. Now this is not merely an invitation. It's that, but it's more than that. This is a stirring to life call. This is an effectual call theologians will talk about. It's the way that Jesus called for Lazarus to come out from the dead. Come, that's a call. So you are a believer today because God called you to life. He stirred you to life. So they were called and were called. Secondly, beloved. So beloved in God. Now this is not just being loved by God, although that is good and true. This is beloved in God. That God's love envelops them. This is to be brought within the realm of God's love which would include his grace and his mercy. So you are enveloped by the love of God. And then third, kept. This is a holding that never lets go. You are kept. As John 10, 28 to 29 says, says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So that's Jesus speaking. And then he says, my father who is given to them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So they are kept. Your relationship with Christ is secure. You are held by God himself. Now, we're going to see that more next week, Lord willing, when we look at this marvelous doxology that ends this this short letter in verses 24 and 25. But again, this is the warmth and encouragement that Jude gives these readers before Jude gets gets to the challenge. So, they are being urged to contend for, from a place of security. No need to be anxious. And so, our reality, as those who are, who are placed, have placed our faith in Jesus, our reality is this. We have been called by God from death to life, out of darkness into light. We are in the love of God. 
in God's realm of mercy and grace, and we are kept to the end. Our future is secure. Now, he also has a prayer that he gives for them. And again, three words. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. First of all, before we get to the three words, multiplied to you. He says, you have this, I want you to have it more. I want it to be increasingly true of you. And here are the three words. First is mercy. So he prays that they would have a mercy that they have received. They would experience that more and more, be aware of that more and more. And then that mercy would be displayed in them to others. So mercy. And then peace. And inner calmness. In the midst of the challenging and troubling times that they are facing, they will need that. They need peace. And then love. In the midst of difficult times, you can become cantankerous and hard to get along with. He says, I pray for that that love would be more and more a reality, even in the midst of the challenging times. The love of God, this is the love of God for them, the love of God in them, and the love of God through them. So after all that, here's, here's the foundation that jo, jo, Jude lays. You are a people who have been called, beloved, and kept. May you increasingly be a people of mercy, peace, and love. So now we get to contend for the faith. I'm going to break this down into answering nine questions to get our understanding around what that would mean for us to contend for the faith. First question is this. What is the faith? What is the faith? Verse 3, I found it necessary to write to you, a right appealing to you to contend for the faith. Well, faith can be used in various ways. There is a subjective aspect of our faith, a subjective aspect of it. This is the inner life of faith. This is sometimes used in a way of the feelings of trust in God. We have faith. I have faith. I'm trusting in God. So it, contends, it deals with emotions and experience of having faith. This is a personal relationship with Christ type of faith when we say the subjective aspect of our faith. So hear this then. Sometimes it's necessary to, to stress that Christianity is primarily a relationship with Jesus rather than a set of ideas about Jesus. And no one is saved by believing a set of ideas. The devil believes most of the truths of Christianity. And we need to stress that unless a person has a living trust faith, in Jesus as Savior and Lord, all the orthodoxy in the world will not get him or her into heaven. So that's, that's subjective faith. It's essential. But what we have here in Jude is not talking about a subjective faith. What we have here in Jude is an objective faith. And sometimes then faith is used to refer to the truth that we believe about the one that we trust. So verse 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the external truth that God has revealed to be true. So once for all delivered to the saints. It's been given to us. We didn't think it up. It's been delivered to us. It's sealed. It's in your hands right now. 
Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to what? The standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's the objective faith. Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's that objective set of faith. So let me, let me give you four bullet points then under that. There are truths about God and Christ and man and the church and the world which are essential to the life of Christianity. Second, if they are lost or distorted, the result will not merely be wrong ideas, but misplaced trust. Third, the inner life of faith is not independent from the doctrinal statement of faith. When doctrine goes bad, so do hearts. There is a body of doctrine that must be preserved. And fourth, there is a great strength when our experience of having faith is attached to a secure foundation of faith. So that's what we're talking about when we say the faith. Second, what is the situation that calls for this appealing? Appealing. Verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Well, false teachers, as I had said earlier, false teachers had crept into the churches. And he says this is the reason for the appealing. Let me get to verse 4. He says, for certain people. That for, read, because. Why am I appealing? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers have come in. So I'm appealing to you. The faith is that important. We must hold on to it. All our subjective aspects of faith, no matter how strong, if they're not attached to the objective essence of what we are to believe and what is true, they all lack. So we must hold on to it. It's a common situation. It was predicted. Jesus predicted it in Acts 20, 29 to, to 31. I know that after my departure, I'm sorry, Paul, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then in Galatians, again, 1, 8 to 9. But even if, I, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, we preach something off from the, from the faith that was delivered, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And within these, these predictions is a call then. Do you hear? A call to be ready to address the errors. Not just to recognize them, but to address the errors that arise. And to be ready to oppose those who advance those errors. And this, this has shown up throughout church history. 
the creeds that we have, if you, if you know the creeds of, of the Christian faith, the creeds of faith that we have today are the result of having to address false teachers and false teachings. Every generation of the church has had to address false teaching and false teachers. Every generation has had to guard the purity of the church. And this is certainly showing up today. So, Jude's appeal is certainly relevant for us today as well then. Question number three. How have these false teachers crept in? How did it happen? It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. How does that happen? Well, there's two things going on here. The first one is this. They presented themselves well. They didn't come in all ugly and nasty. They came in well. They presented themselves well. They said many of the right things. Their errors were hidden within saying the right words and even many of the right doctrines. They talked about Jesus and grace and salvation. They, they couched their error within right things that they said as well. And they acted in the right ways. They were smooth, I'm sure, and charming and engaging and caring and even appearing spiritual. They were disguised. Jude calls them, in, in verse 12, he calls them hidden reefs. Rocks that are hidden from sight, just under the water, where the water looks smooth. But those reefs just under the water, which if a boat were to hit them, unaware that they're there, would cause incredible damage. They're like that. In Matthew seven fifteen, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, How'd they come in? They presented themselves well. But then also this, the second reason, the church, the Christians were easily deceived. They were gullible. They weren't able to discern the error. Today, it's, it's, it's much the same then, as it always has been. It's much the same. False teachers can make their way in, saying many of the right things, acting in the right ways, disguised, they use, they use all sorts of means that they didn't have then. They show, show up right into the, at the front door of the church and they come in among us. Or they knock on the door of your house and want to share with you some truths about God. They write books. They have podcasts. They have online sermons. They have social media. In all those ways, they come in, could come in unnoticed. And many Christians today are easily deceived are gullible, not being able to discern error. Question number four. So, with that being said, what does it mean to contend? Well, the Greek word here at the core of it has an idea of strenuous activity, like an athletic event. In Philippians 1.27, we have some sense of this. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's the strength of it. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that's what's going on here. And this contending then, I want us to think of it in terms of having a negative and a positive aspect. 
The negative would be this. And when I say negative, don't think in terms of bad, but in, in terms of being oppositional. It has to oppose something. Negative in that way. So it has to oppose the false teachers who have crept in, who are, have an opposing influence on the church. So that's the negative thing. Standing up to the false teachers, calling them out, and then warning others within the church, within the faith family, about the false teachers and about the errors that are being spread. So we need to do that to contend. And we must not lose this. There's also a positive side. Notice it says to contend for the faith. So it's not just against something, it's for, we're, we're striving to preserve something, to advance something. That is the core part of contending. So the positive aspect is this, is to pursue lives that are being lived within the context of the gospel. That we don't want it perverted so that we can actually live lives within what the faith really is. Informed by the truth that has been delivered to us. Strengthened by the gospel. Informed by the gospel. Question number five. Why is it necessary then to contend for the faith? Well, I've said some of that already. You have a sense of that. But let me advance this. John Piper says this. says, the promise of victory assumes valor in battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat. His purpose is not that we lay down our sword and go to lunch, but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for the strength to fight and win. Why do we contend for the faith? Well, the the church never declines because of external pressure. It always dwindles because of crumbling from inside. If you don't think that's true, look at some of the places where the church is advancing among, in the world. Now, I know that we see what's happening around us and we bemoan some of what the culture and the country is, is moving towards and is moved into. But consider where the church is growing and so vital in the world today. Places like China. Places like North Korea, not South, North Korea, the church is vibrant. (coughs) The church has survived and is surviving many external threats and challenges. Now, it's not that we should not care about or confront external threats and issues. But we must not be overwhelmed or overly focused on what is happening, happening externally. And I fear that's what is taking place in many churches. We're so concerned about what is happening out there that we've taken our ball off of, eye off of the ball, what's happening within churches. Should we care what's happening out there? Sure, we should. We're called to be salt and light. I'm not talking about shifting our focus. I'm saying, talking about the intensity of our focus. It's possible to be focused on the culture so much that we lose our focus and reliance on the gospel. Churches decay and dissolve when they lose their hold on the commitment of the truth of God's word. Spurgeon said this, The greatest danger is not from those who rail on the fringes of faith, but it is when those who are the proponents and exponents of faith begin to dilute and to distort 
the message. So why, why is it necessary to contend for the faith? The health and continued existence of the church as the church is at stake. Question number seven. Who should contend? Well, some of you, as you've been listening to the sermon, that's right. That's what pastors should do. That's their job. Bring the elders alongside of them. That's what they're to be about. Now, every genuine believer should contend for the faith. Notice who this letter is written to. It's not written to a pastor. It's written to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, now certainly, leaders within the church, especially pastors and elders, should be on the front lines of this contending. That's, that's part of their call. That's part of their charge. Teaching and informing the church. Speaking out and confronting false teachers. Leaders should be doing that. But the overall church body needs to be well-versed, well-versed in doctrine and theology. Able to discern error. Not being gullible. And ready to defend the theology when biblical error arises. And when opportunities to do so arise. Question number seven. So in general, what are the issues of the faith for which we are to contend? Well, there's a body of doctrine worth contending for, and there are secondary doctrines which we should not contend with each other about. Let's understand what those are. It's open hand and closed hand thinking. There are open hand issues. In the open hand, we must hold loosely and graciously to those doctrines that are important. It's not that they're unimportant, but they're secondary. They're they're issues that that, that godly people, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, after praying and studying, they still disagree about. Things like the mode of baptism or exercise of spiritual gifts or the style of worship, or the mode of church government, and on and on. Those are secondary. We hold them. They're they're important, but they're secondary. They're not essential to what we hold as the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can fellowship across those lines, even as we disagree on secondary issues. But there are closed-hand issues. In the closed-hand We must put those non-negotiable doctrines, doctrines over which we must fight in order to preserve what it means to be a Christian. So the perfection and trustworthiness of the Bible. God is a Trinitarian creator and redeemer. Human sinfulness. Jesus' sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection in our place for our sin. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And on and on the list could go. It's over these issues that we must contend for the faith. Question number eight. What are some of the specifics, Ed, for which we need to contend? Well, here, here's the, let, me, let me just work through the specific one that Jude, that Jude is addressing in this 
letter as he writes. Look again, starting at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who, and here's here's their error, perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, perverting the gospel of our God into sensuality and denying our Lord and Master Jesus Christ again. Okay. So the false teaching. Well, we have to understand when it comes to the gospel, there are basically two main errors that we can fall into. Two ways that we can pervert the grace of God. The first one is legalism. This is the belief that we are saved by our good works, by what we do. Legalism would, would sound like this then. If I were to die tonight, I know that I would go to heaven because... I've been a good person. Or, it could sound like this, God could never love me because I've done too many bad things. Both of these are focuses on our behavior and our works, either good or bad. And both of these are expressions of legalism. But there's a second way that we pervert the grace of God. Verse 4, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So sensuality is the pursuit of pleasure. This is the opposite of legalism. You hear it like this. Legalism says, I'm saved by my good works. Sensuality says this. I'm saved so my good works don't matter. I'm a sinner. I've always been a sinner. I'm always going to be a sinner. It's not even worth not try, to try to not sin because I'm saved by grace. And this isn't the gospel either. This is a perversion of the grace of God into sensuality. This is using God's grace as an excuse to keep on sinning. So as Jude says, denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the faith that has been delivered, which addresses both of these errors, which brings both of them to an understanding of what is the faith once and all delivered to the saints. We are not saved by keeping God's commands. But keeping God's commands does matter. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 14, you are my friends if uh, you do what I command. Now, we need to get get the order right in this. Otherwise, we do get into error. We are not saved by keeping God's commands. We cannot keep God's commandments. We have all failed. If we're trying to work our way to God, we will never get there. We will never be good enough. See, the gospel is that God came down to us. Jesus came down to us. He he lived a perfect life, dying the death that we should have died, paying the price for our sin. So, Jesus didn't die only. Jesus didn't die so we could just keep on sinning. Jesus died so that we could be freed from the power of sin. Jesus came to free us from bondage to sin. Jesus came so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can keep God's commandments, not perfectly, but increasingly so. So in Romans 6, it addresses this. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
I'm, I'm saved. Let, let grace abound because it would be more stuff to forgive. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, uh, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Here, here's, here's, here's how grace invades your life. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. So Jude would, would say this, real Christians walk in a new kind of life, not perfectly, but increasingly so. Real Christians do not tra- treat sin lightly. Real Christians do not use the grace of God as an excuse to keep on sinning. So contending here would mean this. Remember the positive and the negative side. On the negative, confronting the false teachers and their errors and declaring the truth and warning others within the church about that error. We do that, but we don't pull short and just do that. There's a positive side, pursuing, pursuing lives that are lived within the context of the gospel. If we go to either one of the errors, we lose this, and here's what we lose. Being at peace and resting in the fact that I'm saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone. And striving to grow in holiness, progressively free from bondage to sin. Now, the work that I've just done in relation to perverting the gospel of God into sensuality is the work that needs to be done whenever a false teaching arises. All of that needs to be done. Just consider, I don't have time to go through it. Let me just mention some of them. And you'll say, yes, we know that's around. So some of the issues we face today, there are gender issues that are around. This is an issue that's not just in the culture around us, but it's invaded the churches. This issue is an issue that attacks, and we had time to look at, attacks the very essence of who God is, who we are, and what the gospel is. Another issue, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that greatly perverts an understanding of the gospel. There's one called the, the, the self-esteem gospel that is kind of like a cousin to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Here, hear this, and I'm not going to tell you who said it, but it's a well-known, and you'd probably be surprised who said this. Hear this, and, and see if you would discern it, that, that this is error. He says this, every Christian is a worthy individual in the eyes of Almighty God. The mark of how special you are is the cross. Jesus wouldn't die for the unworthy. Therefore, the banner over the cross for every individual for which he died is worthy. That's error. This is in direct contradiction to the clear teaching in the Bible that says you are undeserving. You're not deserving of God's grace. And not only that, you are actually ill-deserving. Apart from the grace of God, we are deserving of hell. Today we're, we're, focused, we're faced with issues of dealing with hell. That some would say there's a hell but it's going to be empty. Or hell won't be an eternal place. This is an attack on God's righteousness and judgment. And it's an attack on our understanding of the depth of man's sinfulness. And of course there's the attack of, of pluralism on the gospel. A move away from the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way. 
a, a continued a, a slow acceptance of maybe Jesus isn't the only way, maybe other religions are right also. There are more and more will come. But question number nine, how are we to contend? So three quick thoughts of how, how do we do this then? What does that start to look at? First of all, contend with the right heart. Contend does not be, mean contentious. Now, there are some of you who are, who are naturally combative, and you know who you are, and you hear this, you go, let's bring it on. Contentious, no, this is not an argumentative, sarcastic, social media smackdown of some kind of contending. We must watch our hearts while we contend. We must watch our hearts. So not contentious, but courageous. This, this, some of you who are timid need to hear this. Well, I'm just not that kind of person. Then God's going to have to make you into that kind of person. Because it will take courage. This is going to require some backbone and willingness to be mistreated in some way and to contend for the gospel. So, first thing, contend with the right heart. Second thing, contend with an informed head. Contend with an informed head. Knowledgeable. Know the truth. Know the faith. Some people say, well, I'm not a theologian. Yes, you are. It's a matter of whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian. It's a matter of where you've worked hard at it or just absorbed things I like to think of God as. Or it seems to me. We are all theologians. It's a matter of how much we've studied and how good our theology is. We need to to be a people who know more about the gospel than we know about Hunter Biden's laptop. We need to be a people who know more about the gospel than we know about Josh Allen's stats last night or tomorrow, whenever. We, we need to study and know the truth. Otherwise, we will be gullible, and there will be times when we will be deceived, either as a church or as individuals. We need to have knowledge about substitutionary atonement, the Trinity, the nature of Jesus, the nature of the Bible, knowing the meaning of words and phrases so that we're able to spy out error. Errors that are often just a little off. Errors that use the right words but with different meanings. So my encouragement is take advantage of the solid teaching that you have here at Orchard. If, if you have been here for a long time and haven't visited other churches, you may not appreciate what you have here enough because you have solid teaching, preaching here so take advantage of that. Sup- and then supplement what you get here with solid bi- other solid biblical resources. And when I say that, don't just go and say, okay, what are the Christian books that are on a shelf? Go talk, talk, talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, say, what should I be reading? Who are good authors? Who are people I should be listening to? So supplement with good biblical resources and then get into a practice of thinking critically when you hear teaching related to the Bible. Think critically. Say, is that true? Does that line up? Is there error? So a right heart, an informed head, and then contend with mercy. And for this, I go to verses 22 and 23. It says that have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
Some people will doubt. In fact, almost all of us will doubt at some time. Doubt, doubt is just a wavering uncertainty. It's a confusion. It's an unsettledness. Not sure what is true. These false teachers, they seem to have some truth. Maybe this is right. And so there are people who, who doubt. So how do we respond to people whose doubt? This needs to be a safe place for them. Not a safe place where we affirm their doubt, but a safe place where they can work out their doubt and, and hear the truth. And to do that, we need to have mercy on them. Mercy on those who are disturbed and confused by false teaching and false teachers. We don't crush them or condemn them. We help them. We listen to their confusion. We listen well to their thoughts. We listen to their hearts. And then we strive to reorient them to the faith. We show them the truth from Scripture. We show them the error that they're dealing with. And we show them what is right. And we do this increasingly so as they get deeper and deeper into false teaching, as false teaching takes hold of them. Let me close by just reading this this statement then. The fight of faith is hard. Doubt, in whatever form, is part of the hard fight. Doubt is dangerous to faith and, to some degree, a necessary experience of believers in an age where the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is under constant assault, where well-aimed flaming darts are frequently being shot at believers, and where believers on their best days see only in a mere dimly and know only in part. On their worst days, this mirror, this mirror can seem very dim indeed. So let us be merciful to those who doubt. Let us not crush them or condemn them. And may God bring mercy to us when we doubt. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. Thank you that you have delivered to us the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would strengthen us with a resolve to contend for the faith that has been delivered to us. Thank you for this church that has contended for the faith and is contending for the faith. Lord, in the midst of these challenging times, when it's challenging to be a believer in Jesus Christ, would you please increase us in mercy and in peace and in love. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen.